I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 124 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. I'm your host, Pete Strzok. Hey, Pete. I'm Allison Gill. Lots of news today, all over the place, too, including Jim Jordan demanding that Jack Smith investigation documents be handed over from the Department of Justice, just as the documents case is coming to an end, by the way, and how the single FBI document that Jim Jordan and Jim Comer want to hold Chris Ray in contempt over is actually an old Rudy Giuliani document. We talked about that a little bit on our bonus episode this weekend. Yeah, it's <laughs> probably got Rudy's Bloody Mary stains from the <laughs> club before he made his way over to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. But also, Pete Navarro's trial has been scheduled, and Rudy oh. pushes back on the judge hearing the Ruby Freeman and Shamos lawsuit saying he shouldn't have to disclose his financials. But first... We want to thank our new patrons. We couldn't make the show without you. So thank you so much to John McGee, Becky Thompson, Elizabeth Baker, Utah Dude, Megan Hostetter, Adam Martin, Judith U. Alexander, Janet Bowling, I'm a here for it, John Galuli, Casey Mitchell, Perfectly Panda, Chris Pavak, and Barb. Ah, and thanks to Sonia Petrovic. Jilda Nettleton, it might be Hilda, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Shaggy Historian, love it, Eliza Cleveland, Susan Reed, Kath, Kathleen R. O'Connell, Helen Loveken, Sherry W., Suzanne Salisbury, RTS, Tim Bell, Amy Katz, Liz Kay, and Elmo in Pasco. Thank you so much for being patrons. Again, you make this show run. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to become a patron, a patron of Clean Up on Aisle 45, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. All right. First up, your favorite, 
Um, I know you love talking about Jim Jordan. He's such an, a cool an, dude. Another day, another dumpster fire, and he never, <laughs> he never disappoints. Never ever. <laughs> he, is as, he is, he is as regular as Metamucil on your bowel system. <laughs> He's apparently. Dry. That's a really good actual metaphor. Yeah, for him. it's a good image, right? It's yeah. He's apparently trying to give Donald Trump a peek inside the special counsel investigation because, you know, Donald Trump has enlisted House Republicans to be an arm of his defense team. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee chairman uh, sent a letter Thursday to Attorney General Merrick Garland seeking details about the FBI's involvement in special counsel Jack Smith's sprawling investigations of the former president, including his mishandling of classified documents that were found at his private residence at Mar-a-Lago. The letter says, Pete, quote, Explain whether any FBI employees who have worked on special counsel Smith's investigation previously worked on any other matters concerning President Trump, unquote, and explain, quote, whether special counsel Smith's investigation relies on any information or material gathered exclusively by the FBI prior to the special counsel's appointment. What? Like, you know, and I'm, I'm, I would hope this is rhetorical flourish because, look, you, you, joke of a oversight chairman. The fact obviously is that for the better part of a year, Trump was haggling first with the National Archives. And then after the National Archives found a bunch of classified information and gave it to DOJ and DOJ became, began investigating, of course, the FBI gathered information and material prior to the special counsel's appointment, which only the occurred search after warrant. Trump. Yes. So it's all, I, this is clearly a little stunt. And the thing, again, Allison, keep in mind, this comes on the heels. There was Rolling Stone reporting mid late last week, which indicated that Trump was asking his close advisors to do everything they could to identify the attorneys and investigators who are working on the Mar-a-Lago investigation so he can immediately fire them as soon mm -hmm. as he, uh, regains the presidency, presumably. So this is, not, this is nothing about oversight. This is just, you know, they weren't having a lot of uh, luck there. And so Jim Jordan is now taking up the uh, mantle to try and get that information via a congressional route out of DOJ and the FBI. And, I, you know, I hope it's not successful. But it again, it's nonsense. Yes, of course, the FBI was involved prior to Smith's appointment. And who cares whether, you know, whether employees worked on anything regarding President Trump before, whether they worked on Martha Stewart, whether they worked on some, you know, Endangered Species Act series of investigations in the Pacific Northwest. Who cares? Who cares? It's all mm -hmm. a stunt. Oh, yeah. And, and as much as I'd like to see an answer, like, did any FBI employees work on other matters, including, uh, like, for President Trump? Probably. I would like to see that answer. Probs. I mean, we only have so many FBI agents and there's so many Trump crimes. And then, you know, uh, whether they had uh, FBI uh, material gathered prior to special counsel. Yes, it was called the search on Mar-a-Lago. Yes, that uh, and everything else that the FBI did before since May, including the subpoena. Uh, with the Department of Justice that they got a judge to sign off on, uh, along with the search. So, yeah, uh, but, you know, m more than likely, uh, Jack Smith is either going to just ignore this or say, look, I don't provide anything that's part of an open and ongoing investigation. And they know that. Jim Jordan knows that. And he, by the way, a guy who hasn't responded to his own subpoenas from Congress. So mm, whatever, dude. Um, but he says that he has congressional oversight authority to request a briefing by the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco on any changes made by the FBI to correct any failings cited by Trump-era special counsel John Durham. Okay. 
Yeah, and that strikes me. Look, that strikes me as a you know a, a legitimate congressional request. You had a special counsel as as much of a biased partisan exercise as I believe it truly to have been. But you know, to sit there, I think you can with a straight face say, "Hey, special counsel's done. Can you know we want a senior leader from DOJ to show up and tell us what changes were made?" I hope you know one if the department sends anybody. I hope they take at least enough time to push back just a touch on some of just the outrageous uh, allegations and innuendo that Durham had in his report and to the extent that there is anything there to say, look, everything substantive was identified by the inspector general. As has been documented, the FBI and DOJ implemented a number of measures to tighten the FISA process and on and on and on and just answer that. But, you know, not to I, I was a little aggravated when after Durham's report came out, the FBI essentially issued a this short little statement saying, oh, well, you know, everything we've uh, done has addressed everything in Durham's report without kind of pushing back a little bit and saying, and by the way, they're, you know, we don't necessarily agree with everything in the report. They just, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, I think, figured, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And if we just, you know, essentially say nothing, people will forget about it. But, you know, we'll see. I, this asking a senior DOJ or FBI person to come and talk about uh, a report from a special counsel doesn't strike me as improper but you know there's a responsible way to respond to that and i'm yeah i i don't know if doj and the fbi will or won't and they know the answer they just went through the Mueller investigation same same samesies right like we think fbi policy hasn't changed since then so we don't hand over stuff have a nice day um oh yeah we'll see what happens with that but we can't not talk about the Department of Justice documents case news today, Pete, because I know, you know, we break this down. We go down in depth on the Jack podcast this weekend. But, you know, I saw you, uh, I, you know, uh, on a couple of hits on MSNBC talking about what, what happened today. And, uh, you know, because we learned yesterday that Trump's lawyers were going to meet with DOJ officials. We found out today that they did. They met for two hours. We found out Jack Smith was there, which shouldn't be a surprise. He's the guy in charge. Attorney General Garland was not there. Lisa Monaco, the DAG, was not there. The Deputy Attorney General was not there. And apparently they asked the DOJ to not indict Donald. And uh, they also uh, brought up some what they consider prosecutorial misconduct on behalf of the special counsel's office. And uh, DOJ, according to Hugo Lowell's, it was a very unproductive meeting. So that's sort of where we are. And, and what that says to me is that, you know, this is the end, right? The The... The grand jury is supposed to meet this week. I'm go. I'm on a plane tonight to D.C. to go stake out the Purdyman Courthouse. Um, but the, the the grand jury is supposed to meet in D.C. And we found out from the New York Times, uh, you know, early or mid Monday that there's an, a separate grand jury meeting in Florida. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about, because this to me sounds like maybe they're doing espionage up in D.C. and obstruction down in Florida, because that's where the obstruction took place. Is that something that rings true or why would they be using a Florida grand jury to tie up loose ends, as they say? Yeah, I think that's, in my mind, the most logical explanation. I mean, I think if you're DOJ, you want a D.C. jury. A D.C. jury is much more preferable than a Mar-a-Lago jury. There is a reasonable, very um, appropriate case to be made that Trump had access to these documents when he was in the White House. He took them without authorization from the White House that was in Washington, D.C. All the victim agencies are either in Washington, D.C. or Northern Virginia in the case of the CIA and you know Maryland for the NSA. But you can make a strong case. It's not just, hey, we want a D.C. jury. You can make a strong case that those crimes of taking it occurred 
in DC and that wherever he possessed it later on is sort of secondary to where the act, the initial wrongful act occurred. Now, what's interesting, and you know, there was that I had heard for the first time, I think today about that Florida grand jury. There are some things like potentially the question is, okay, why Florida? I mean, there might be some things where, you know, if you were trying to look at acts that had occurred after the fact, for instance, you know, a hypothetical, if that, you know, Trump along with Nada or others, other attorneys or whoever else it might be, after they got to the point where DOJ is asking for the return and subpoenaing for the return of these documents, if they're engaging in a conspiracy to obstruct the return of those documents, that's occurring in Florida, right? That That isn't happening in D.C. and you can't tie that to D.C. So that that crime occurred and first sort of popped into mind down there. Even and though so, the victim agency is in D.C.? It's yeah, still I mean, because the act, it's true, right? I mean, the, it's, it's absolutely true that the victim agency is still up here and you could... You, I mean, you might have a tenuous argument, but if I'm a defense attorney, I think there's a, a much stronger argument to tell the judge that, look, this is, you know, DOJ trying to venue shop for a favorable jury in D.C. This alleged act, which didn't happen, I'm speaking as the defense attorney, this alleged act, which didn't happen, nevertheless, as alleged, occurred strictly down at Mar-a-Lago. The people are in Mar-a-Lago. They live at Mar-a-Lago. Trump lives at Mar-a-Lago. Nato lives at Mar-a-Lago. Whoever this little poom boy who drained the damn pool into the server room apparently also <laughs> helped out Walt Nata lives in Florida. So I think you could make a, an argument there. But, you know, the so that I think is Florida. And then the other question is, okay, you know, if... And I've seen, you know, some folks saying, oh, it's happening this week. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if and when it'll happen. I think it is fairly close. But another question in my mind, particularly in light of this Florida grand jury, is who besides Trump is potentially facing charges on the documents? You know, I think Nada pops to mind. I don't know if like Christina Bob, I don't know if other attorneys who, you know, maybe Boris Epstein, you know, who knows what he told Trump he could or couldn't do and whether or not he was helping him pursue some illegal aim, I don't know. But I think it is certainly possible that people beyond Trump get indicted with regard to the classified documents. And that two, the question, biggest question in my mind is, do you see charges in DC and charges in Florida? Do you see all the charges in one of those places, I think D.C. would be hard to do. So do you put them all in Florida just for the totality of the case? I don't know. But, you know, I, my suspicion is like, yeah, so so Garland didn't meet with trustee and Lindsay Halloran or, or Hanrahan, Halloran, Halloran, right? Halligan. Um, Halligan. And then the third, I forget the guy's name, but, you know, Rally. apparently, yeah. Monaco wasn't there. Garland wasn't there. Jack Smith apparently was. I wouldn't be surprised if Brad Weinsheimer, who's the associate deputy attorney general, he's the senior um, non-political attorney in the Department of Justice. Mm. It was a position Scott Schools had before him. And then a guy named David Margolis had it forever. Um, but they're kind of like when it when you get to very sensitive sort of political things and you want someone at DOJ to speak in an apolitical way because they're not an appointee, it's that associate deputy attorney general spot. And they're usually, like in my experience, like Mueller and particularly Aaron Zebley, who was you know, kind of Mueller's right-hand man, dealt all the time with Scott. I mean, his primary interaction was Scott Schools. Certainly there was some of the Rod Rosenstein and ODAG, but the that associate DAG position was in very close contact with the special counsel Mueller. Similarly, I think Durham had a lot of interaction with Weinsheimer in particular, so it wouldn't surprise me if on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, Weinsheimer was 
uh, involved. And it would make sense, right? I don't know who in the DOJ kind of headquarters realm was there, but Weinsheimer would be the person that if you wanted, again, to present a very apolitical posture, which I'm sure Garland wants to do, he's fine. Here's the senior non-political guy. So we'll see if it comes out. I don't know that much matters because frankly, I don't think anything they have to say is going to change their minds. And look, I know two, I know several, well, I know at least three prosecutors working for Jack Smith. One of them, like Jay Bratt, I know very well. None of these folks are hotheads, right? They're not going in there, like going up and past the line of being too aggressive and, you know, engaging in ethical or inappropriate uh, measures. Those those aren't the type of prosecutors they are. That isn't the type of behavior. You know, I saw them engage, did not engage in anything like that over, you know, 15 plus years. For a case like this, given their personality, given the subject target is Donald Trump, I would be shocked if there's anything legitimate to any of these complaints. But, you know, they got to go in there and, and make the case. That's what, you know, defense attorneys would do. I would want my defense attorney to go do the same thing. I don't expect it's going to make a bit of difference. No, I, I, I wouldn't expect so either. I guess my only concern is if the obstruction case, because the obstruction conspiracy is the granddaddy. That's the 20-year max, uh, Title 18 U.S. Code 1519. And if you have to do that down in Florida, you're not going to have as good a chance on a conviction as you would uh, in D.C. And so, uh, but, you know, if you do, if you're running espionage uh, and, you know, other stuff, 1001, 402, you know, whatever, whatever uh, 2071, concealing classified documents. Uh, it, you know, that's still a good beefy case. Um, but, if, you know, if you have to separate out, separate out obstruction down in Florida, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I mean, jury's a jury and you can have uh, a hung jury anywhere. We've seen it in D.C. We saw it with the Manafort case. Um, they were hung on seven counts of the eighteen. Um, because of one juror who, you know, uh, was a MAGA person, but was also like, hey, there's just documentary evidence on these other 11 counts. I can't dismiss that, you know. So I think I think if the case is put on strongly enough, I mean, that all we can do, you know, the only thing we have control over is thoroughness in the investigation and and putting on the best prosecution that we can. Everything else is left in the hands of the jury and the judge. And um that's just, that's the system. That's the system that we have. So, all right, well, we'll see where all that goes. But yeah, the, uh, <laughs> you, you sort of glossed over it, but the fact that that pool guy drained the pool into the server room, it's just, uh, uh, I, I would be kicked out of a writer's room. Well, it's like, it's an arrested development episode, right? I mean, but the thing is, but look, I mean, there are. <laughs> always I mean, sunny. People, it's an people... always sunny People, yeah, people fuck up, right? I mean, I know everybody's looking there saying, you know, questioning his motives and saying, hey, you know, if Paul Manafort's willing to benefit from his access, you know, is what's to say some, you know, damn literal pool boy, right? Uh, who's to say he wasn't profiting from it? I, that's possible. But look, people just, I mean, it was the same, you know, some of the folks involved with the running the server at the, the last stage where Hillary Clinton contracted that out. They were doing some stuff. They made dumb mistakes. They scrambled to cover it up. And, you know, it, it's the point being, you you can't, it isn't necessarily nefarious motive all the way down. I mean, people do, particularly if you're the pool guy, fuck things up. And so, you know, I want to wait and see, you know, before jumping all over this guy. I mean, he apparently was also the same person, according to CNN, that helped Walt move the boxes from the presidential mm -hmm. office or residence back down to the storage room or up and back down. But, you know, let's hear 
you know, this guy's story before we jump all over him. It could be just that he's, you know, muscular, 19 and stupid and, you know, is good for lifting heavy boxes. And it's his boss, Donald Trump, t- told him to do a thing, you know, right. like. Yeah. So, but I, it is just, you know, a Keystone cop, like, drain it into the, are you kidding me? <laughs> just... <laughs> It's going to drain the swamp. Uh, He met the pool at Mar-a-Lago. All right, everybody, we're going to be right back. We have a lot more news to get to. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, More on the House Republicans. Uh, This time it's Jim Comer. He's head of the Oversight Committee, and he's asking for the FBI to release a specific document or else he's going to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. Oh, boy. Ooh, boy. And like the DOJ documents that Jim Jordan wants, you can't just have documents, Comer, especially ones in cases where you didn't indict someone like Rudy. That's to protect Rudy. (laughs) Believe it or not. Um, The document comes from Rudy Giuliani as part of his trip to Ukraine to, you know, try to fabricate dirt on the Bidens and Burisma, that whole trip. Fertosh, Fruman and Parnas were involved. Um, But let's think about how contempt works, Pete. Um, You vote on it in the committee because we saw this recently. We'll talk about Pete Navarro in a minute, but we saw this recently with the January 6th Select Committee. You vote on it in committee. I believe then you vote in the full house to make a uh, to hold someone in contempt and make a criminal referral. 
And that criminal referral goes Guess to where? the Department of Justice. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I guess it would be cool political theater, which is all they're really after here, you know. Uh, and then, of course, they could say the FBI won't, you know, hold their own accountable or the DOJ won't, you know, hold their own accountable. They're protecting their deep, deep state. It's a it's a liberal organization from top to bottom, you know, that whole uh, bullshit, uh, which is just ridiculous. Um, but tell, uh, talk a, a little bit about this Rudy document and why this is just so hilarious to me. It took me like a day and a half to stop laughing. Yeah. I mean, so, so a couple of points. One is it was at the end of the day, a source document. So whether that's Rudy, whether it's somebody on the street, whether it's a little old lady who clips something out of the newspaper, it shows up at an FBI field office. The FBI gets information from all kinds of people and all kinds of sources every single day of the year all across the United States, all around the globe. And part of the deal is when you get this information that typically, not always, but typically people want to have their identity protected. People don't want to say, hey, I went and gave this to the FBI. They want to protect themselves from getting drawn into some criminal and counterintelligence or terrorism investigation. And so the FBI does a tremendous amount to protect its sources of information just because it is so important to what the FBI does. You don't want somebody saying, well, I, maybe I should go to the FBI, but they can't keep a secret. Every time Congress asks for something, they they turn it over. So you know, why do I believe that I'm safe from that? So you need, as the FBI, to protect literally human sources, but all sources are the lifeblood of the organization. Those things which allow the FBI to get allegations, to start investigations, to figure out what is or isn't going on, that is such a foundational part of what the FBI does. You need to protect it. And so not only is there a past practice of absolutely protecting stuff, notwithstanding Bill Barr and John fucking Ratcliffe, who gave up multiple sources who were providing information to the FBI and the conduct of Crossfire Hurricane and should burn in hell for the rest of eternity because of it. But in general, the FBI bends over backwards to protect its sources, not only because those sources might be in danger, but every future potential source, before they decide whether or not they're going to put potentially up to and including their life in the hands of the FBI, they want to know that the FBI is going to protect their name and their identity. So I expect this is not going to get anywhere. And then when we back up, let's look, taking Rudy out of it, let's look where this might have come from. Around the same time, yeah, not only was Rudy running around with Parnas and Fruman and fraud guarantee and all that stupid crap in Ukraine, he was dealing with a guy named Andre Durkach, who after the fact has been sanctioned by the government of the United States of America and is identified at a minimum as being an asset of the Russian intelligence services. So there is every bit of possibility that the Russian intelligence services created a document, a piece of disinformation or a mixture of information and disinformation, put it together. The Russian intel services gave that directly or indirectly to Andrei Durkach, who then gave it to fucking bumbling drunken Rudy, who takes it back and comes and says, I've got proof of Biden corruption. So all of this stinks. It is a zero nothing burger. It was given, by the way to the special intake point set up by Bill Barr, which was the very conservative Trump-appointed U.S. attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania, who had it in his hands to look at and investigate and run down for a long time under, guess who? Attorney General Bill Barr and President Donald J. Trump. So okay. stop with the, this is the smoking gun. Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit. If there was anything to it, it would have been discovered 
in mid to late 2020. This is all nonsense. Jim Comer could take half the money he's using and use it for haircuts for him and Trey Gowdy just to like sharpen up a little bit. It is it is the an utter waste of time. It is political theater. It's not good political theater. It's like 20% on Rotten Tomato political theater. It's, it's horrible. And it's <laughs> There's just not enough ending. money in the world to fix Trey Gowdy's hair. I'm sorry. Well, eh, um, a lot of money spent on this, though. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't shame people for their hair. Yeah, well, I just don't right. Like yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. But it's it's Trey Gowdy and 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 damn Jim Comer. So yeah, anyway, ridiculous. And, but but speaking of Rudy, he's in hot water elsewhere as he's being sued by Georgia election workers Shay Moss and Ruby Freeman. Now, as part of that, he said, well. I can't produce the documents as part of discovery because, well, I can't afford it. And, you know, concordance or whatever the document management system is so expensive and he, he doesn't have the money. And Judge Beryl Howell said, okay, well, great. Then I'm ordering you to prove that you can't afford it by disclosing your financial information to the court. <laughs> to which then Rudy Bluff called says, quote, in his filing, As per Giuliani's declaration filed herewith, he has obtained the funding to pay TrustPoint to allow for full and complete searches responsive to plaintiff's RP, I think it's RFPs, request for productions. Therefore, Giuliani respectfully requests the court consider its ruling in this regard. And then he goes on to cite case law where the ruling goes against what he's asking. So a little, you know, backward forward luring out of uh, his argument and says the minority opinion has been recognized repeatedly in the district. Now, again, this is this is not the prevailing controlling opinion. This is the minority opinion, the, the opinion that lost, right? He says, well, nevertheless, it's been recognized repeatedly in the district, citing a case from 1986, 37 years ago, right? And asked <laughs> yeah. that he not be made to disclose his financials until we're talking about damages. So, I, you know, come on, Rudy, you, you, you came out with a BS line. The court called you on it. And so now, put up or you shut just up. Come up with the money. I, oh, I have the money now to do it. Uh, let's not do disclosure. I have never seen so far in my five years of reading court cases. I've never seen somebody cite a losing case to back up their <laughs> to back up their argument. I've never seen it, uh, except for I think when uh, some of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys wanted to not be charged with obstructing an official proceeding and they cited the minority or the dissenting opinion uh, from, I think, uh, was it the Second Circuit? Something like that. Oh, no. Uh, D.C. Circuit. I can't remember. It was a dissent. Yeah, I think it was the D.C. Circuit. But yeah, that's the only two times that I've seen them anybody cite the minority opinion in a case uh, and then come up with, uh, as you will, as you well know, all of the district, there's been so many. Here's one from 1986 um, that says that um, you should just let me pay for it and not worry about this until, not, I, I shouldn't have to show my financials until disclosure or till, um not disclosure, excuse me, but um, damages when we start figuring out damages because he all right, apparently seems like he's already going to lose um so <laughs> i think that that's just uh there's like nine hilarious things in there and it's uh yeah. typical rudy and poor rudy and i think he's about to you know end of july beginning of august about to find himself on the uh, receiving end of some more criminal charges potentially down in uh, fulton county but we'll see how that shakes out mm-hmm. um yeah yeah life yeah. is life is not you know this is not one of those 
you're you're not heading down a pleasant wooded path towards a beautiful sunset. These people are descending into a raging nightmare of upcoming legal peril and you yeah, know it's not Robert Frost, it's Dante. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. And I took the seventh hell less traveled. Uh it doesn't <laughs> quite work that way. All right, everybody. Uh we've got a couple more tidbits of news, but we have to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. We finally have a trial date for Pete Navarro's criminal contempt misdemeanor charges, and it's September 5th. Now, oh. um, you might say, well, why, why until September? I mean, part of the issue is that, the, you know, the D.C. Uh, circuit is extraordinarily busy with January 6th. I think an underappreciated impact of January 6th is not so much all these, you know, defendants and what happens to them or not, but the follow-on, the knock-on effects that all of those trials have on every other bit of criming that's going on and has gone on in D.C., certainly including people like Peter Navarro's contempt and, but just everything. I mean, crime didn't stop, right? I mean, whether that's, you know, violent crime, white collar crime, that all, that's a constant. And so this massive deluge of the January 6th cases, over a thousand of them and more to come, has really had an impact on sort of the ca- the court's calendar. And I think this is a, this is a direct evidence of that. But yeah. And especially on the tail of COVID when we were already so backed right. up because of the courts closing for COVID. And then you come back and you've got a... Th- 
thousand new cases on your docket. It doesn't matter if you're the rocket docket anymore. I think that's at Virginia, but whatever. Um, it's still, uh, you're going to run into. So I thought September was actually not too shabby. That's, uh, is it later in the, if it's, I love it, especially if it's later in the summer. Later in the summer, that's right. And then, you know, of course, in Bannon, he's been convicted. He's appealing. You know, we'll see how long that takes. I mean, again, I think the goal is that he is going to drag it out as long as he possibly can. I, you know, expect he may well see. Well, especially since the judge told him he didn't have to be in, in jail pending appeal. Right. And some of that might be a function of the judge. I mean, I don't look. I think any judge would be loath to throw him in jail while he's pending appeal. You know, the reality is, given probably the sentence he would have received, he likely would have served it and been out by now. But, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, this he is was just four more, months. He got four months. And, you know, uh, but he, and it's a misdemeanor, right? So, right. He's and not and a, the reality is, look, Bannon is facing much greater peril, certainly up in New York. Um, both federally yep. and I think in the state level. And then who knows what Bannon's uh, exposure is with all the sort of January 6th stuff. And Allison, that's the other thing. It's like, look, we're when you go go back to Jack Smith a little bit and whether they split the indictment between D.C. and Florida, well, they're already, if they issue this indictment, they're likely already splitting it because I would be shocked to see charges related to anyone about January 6th come out at the same time. So there, there's already yeah. likely to be a bifurcation in terms of the work of the special counsel's office. So again, Bannon's exposure there, I think, you know, that's something that is, is the tea leaves are harder to read in terms of federally uh, who's, who's really at risk there or not. But, you know, Georgia, uh, again, Bannon, I don't know, but certainly many, many entities at least have been rumored to be uh, coming down the pike uh, charging wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he was charged by Alvin Bragg, Manhattan district attorney's office for his, we build the wall scheme after he was pardoned for that same scheme by Trump federally. Uh, His other two co-conspirators got three years and four years. Uh, So I I imagine he'll face roughly the same uh, kind of sentence up in New York. Um, But yeah, he's he's in a lot of legal peril and apparently he's not talking to his lawyers or paying them. And and that's just, I guess, his way of gumming up the works. But also, hey, uh, so we talked just about this a little (laughs) bit on the bonus episode. Tara Reid, with the help of Russian swallow slash honeypot Maria Butina. Um, who infiltrated the NRA and, you know, sang karaoke with Erickson, Paul Erickson. And, um, you know, she uh, she's Duma now and uh, she's helped, I guess, or, you know, at least publicly hand holding Tara Reid, uh, who, you know, uh, alleged that Joe Biden sexually assaulted her in 1993, um, defect to Russia. And now she's uh, spending her days uh, pro-Putin propaganda all over RT and Sputnik and wherever else she can get uh, get her face on TV. And Maria Butina is helping her. Yeah. I mean, talk about like, look, I don't, I don't, I, I think Tara Reid is clearly playing the role of a useful idiot. I don't think she is, you know, necessarily deeply conniving and understanding that she's playing into the hands of Russian propagandists uh, in in an extraordinary way, which is the fact of what she's doing. But I mean, remember, Butina was here convicted of being an agent of the government of Russia, was running around with everything from Rick Santorum to Bobby Jindal to John Jr., sleeping with Patrick Byrne, the... You know, the guy running around proposing, you know, with Mike Flynn and Sydney Powell the and cyber the, at the end of 2020, the cyber, you know, yeah. exactly. And saying, you know, we need to, you know, sitting there in the White House in December 2020 saying we need to invoke martial law to seize all the voting machines. I mean, and then turns around, this is Byrne, who, you know, the Overstock guy made a ton of money uh, and supported 
Butina, Butina after a return to Russia for her Duma run. So again, Reed shows up. She gives this rambling. I mean, God bless anybody who listens to all of it. It was like 10, 8, 10, 12 hours long. But essentially, Butina there to, you know, help her into her settling into Russian life to talk about all the evils of the American political system and the falsehoods about the American democracy. I mean, it was just a shit show. Um, and, you know, to the extent anybody, there is a certain group of people who were Putin apologists who said it was a poor young woman, just an opportunist, didn't really know what she was doing. Bullshit. Bullshit. Look at, look at her behavior in the United States. Frame that in the context of what she's doing now. Go back and look at the Z line of clothing that she was hawking all over Russia shortly after they invaded Ukraine. Go look at the interview she did on Navalny when he was out in solitary, essentially chiding him, saying that his conditions were so much better compared to what she faced when she was incarcerated in the United States. I mean, she she is a tool of the government of Russia and, in fact, now a Duma employee. But, you know, it, it's kind of a sad in-state for Tara Reid. It certainly does, I think, speak a ton to her utter lack of credibility about the things she was saying about Biden and, you know, bless those people who questioned her. And for those people who gave credence to her suggestions about Joe Biden, I hope there's, you know, because there are some serious, uh, reputable journalists who gave it some time. And I hope there's some real soul searching. I mean, none, nobody's said boo about, wow, we really maybe got suckered. I haven't, yeah, but, I haven't heard anyone uh, own up to that. But I hope at least somebody in the context of knowing what's possible and what they fell for, you know, they, they, you know, ponder it and, you know. I think a lesson learned is probably the best that we're, yeah. We're yes, exactly uh, like CNN did with the town hall, like, like mm. Chris Lick did, you know, learned all those lessons. We're going to, we're going to treat Trump differently. You know? Sure. Just like Trump learned his lessons. Susan exactly, Collins style. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So. And uh, Pete, I want to get your uh, thoughts on this. Well, uh, I read this. I instantly thought of you. One of America's most notorious spies, Robert Hansen, was found dead on Monday morning at a maximum security prison, Supermax, right, in Colorado. Yeah, look, I mean, I, and generally, you know, I don't, you know, speaking ill of the dead is a fairly well-known phrase and idea, and it usually holds. But I think, you know, the thing I'd say about Hansen is he was responsible for the deaths of multiple Russians who had chosen to work for the United States, for the FBI, for the CIA, put their lives in the hands, just like we were talking about, you know, that source calculation. Literally, these folks put their lives in the hands of the United States and were betrayed by Hansen and lost their lives because of that betrayal. So Hansen will forever be a traitor. He will forever be somebody who caused the death of people who bravely chose to support the United States. And that's, that should be his epitaph. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sad. Um, dying in a jail cell is what was going to happen eventually anyway. And it just so happened to have occurred on June 5th, 2023. So mm. there you go. Yeah. Well, well put. Then what's this last bit of, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> news that you shared with me? So, yeah, <laughs> so, so, you know, shifting gear a little bit, talking about Russian agents or alleged Russian agents. It was interesting that- Are we shifting gears? Uh, maybe not shifting so much, but interestingly <laughs> enough, one of the Army Reserve's newest battalion commanders is none other than Lieutenant Colonel Tulsi Gabbard. Now, for those of you who were never in the military, uh, you know, battalion command is a big deal. I mean, that's, you know, you have various levels as an officer of command from, you know, in the army, 
in the infantry or, you know, different units have different names, but typically you'll have a platoon, a company, and a battalion. And a battalion can be, you know, 400 plus soldiers. I mean, it varies, right? She has a civilian affairs group, so I have no idea what the size of that is. But the fact of the matter is having a battalion command, whether active duty, whether reserves, whether National Guard, is a big deal. And the fact that the Army decided... And, you know, the Army is like everywhere else, particularly in the National Guard and Reserve. You have the right to your opinion. It's made up of a diverse set of people because this is not their full-time job. They're everything from bakers to plumbers to policemen to politicians to everything else. So, you know, that part of being a citizen soldier is you have a full-time life and job outside of it. But I would argue when that full-time job entails supporting Assad and engaging a little bit of denialism about whether or not he ever used chemical weapons against his citizens. When that includes recurrently showing up on Tucker Carlson and whispering things about looking for Ukrainian biolabs and questioning the war to such an extent that Russian state media recurringly picks you up and plays you as one of their darlings, when it includes you know, questionable associations and fundraising, whether when it includes a history of at least two occasions that I'm aware of, where she engaged in prohibited activity by making camp political campaign videos while in uniform that she was censured for. When you put all of this together and sort of like, if you're some army private or sergeant or first lieutenant, and you're sitting through your mandatory insider threat training and told, hey, be on the lookout for these things because they might pose a counterintelligence risk. I don't know how anybody holds up new battalion commander Tulsi Gabbard and her history of behavior and says to that instructor, why are you wasting your time on telling me this? What are you going to do about that? I don't, I don't get it. I'm not, look, Tulsi has every right to say whatever she wants. She can, you know, have and does have an extraordinary number of things that I don't agree with, but I do question DOD's judgment in giving her a battalion command, particularly you know, we want to talk about what he says on, on Tucker. There is an army major general by the name of, forget his first name, Donahue is his last name. Tucker said some horrible shit about women in the military, essentially that the, you know, China was getting strong and the U.S. had a bunch of women and was getting weak. General Donahue went and on Twitter had a video of him re-enlisting a non-commissioned officer under his command, a woman saying, essentially, proud that women are in the military. Tucker Carlson couldn't be more wrong and post that. And what does DOD do? The inspector general goes and investigates him, delays his retirement while they look and they say, well, your behavior brought negative publicity to the Department of Defense. And they eventually, I think, you know, they concluded that. I think it was rolled back. He is retired now. But again, the point is, you do something, you stand up for women in the military under your command saying the military is stronger for women being part of it. And Tucker Carlson, your suggestion that somehow the feminization of the military is making it weak is sexist bullshit. Not saying that, saying it very just you couldn't be more wrong. That's it. That's objectionable because it brings negative publicity to the Department of Defense and you're going to sanction somebody for that. And meanwhile, Tulsi Gabbard is questioning, calling A, Joe Biden a liar. Literally, he said Joe Biden is lying. Questioning whether or not we should be supporting Ukraine, saying, you know, Assad, implying that he did not use chemical weapons against any of his population. That doesn't bring discredit upon the Department of Defense. 
So in other words, you know, there's, there's immediate sharp response if you counter Fox News and Tucker Carlson specifically. But if you go on there as a sycophant and tout Vladimir Putin's line, congratulations. Here's your battalion command. I don't get it. Now, you know, people are like, well, she's not active duty. She's not a general officer. Yes, all that's true. But I just don't, I cannot help but look at all this and just think there is a huge disconnect in the Department of Defense between what they claim to be concerned about in terms of radicalization and an insider threat and susceptibility to disinformation on the one hand, and what actually is going on on a day-to-day basis. I don't get it. It bothers me. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious what you think about the whole thing. Uh, well, I don't get it either. Uh, there have to be a um, hundred other people qualified for that position that haven't been censured twice for recording political videos in uniform, even if we just go with that. You know what I mean? Like the <laughs> there have to be people with cleaner records that are just as qualified to run that battalion. That's that's just my two cents. Strip all the politics out of it um, if you need to. There's so many perfectly clean people with clean records that are qualified. I don't understand. Of course, uh, we probably have Tuberville block it. <laughs> yeah, of course you will. And look, I mean, Allison, the thing, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started taping. There are times, like there are plenty of times where, you know, I encountered situations where, you know, especially working with security folks, you look at somebody and you have concerns about the counterintelligence susceptibility. And so maybe you do extra, you know, sort of put extra sort of review of them or extra surveillance and their spending or travel or whatever the case may be. But despite all your worries, you never hit that threshold where you're like, you know what, we're going to pull your clearance because that takes, you know, that takes a lot. And particularly in the context of protected political speech, which a lot of what Tulsi does is, that's, you may never get to the point where it's like, you know, hey, what you're doing is completely out of bounds. I mean, she is not herself going to RT and appearing. These are things that she's saying on Fox that is getting picked up. So even though there's that deep discomfort of saying, yeah, we all know there's a problem and there's unfortunately not really anything we can do about it. To your point, one thing that is separate and distinct from, you know, we've got to throw you out of the army or, you know, pull your security clearance. One thing you sure can do is this plum choice, hard to get battalion command position Say, hey, is this really the appropriate person given a very competitive environment for this job? And I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Me neither. Well, everybody, that is the show. Uh, That is uh, episode 124. Who knows what we'll be talking about next week, (laughs) Pete. (laughs) But uh, I'll be up in D.C. this week. Like I said, I'll be staking out the Prettyman Courthouse, seeing what's going on with the grand jury there, uh, the Department of Justice documents case. And um, it could be a very, very different political environment the next time uh, we speak. So we will be recording, uh, by the way, uh, a bonus episode this weekend for for cleanup patrons. Thank you again, patrons, uh, for all you do. And um, that's it. That's our show. I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of the week. Do you have any final thoughts? Nope. Looking forward to the uh, bonus episode because I suspect we will have a uh, great deal to talk about. Enjoy the cafeteria at the courthouse there. There's literally nothing within like a 10, 15 minute walk that is decent. Um, But, you know, hey, maybe we'll get to... uh, you know, see somebody interesting walk into the grand jury room. Ah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll make sure to eat beforehand. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody. We'll we'll see you next time. I've been Allison Gill, and I'm Peach Truck, and this is Clean Up on the Aisle Forty Five. Clean Up on Aisle Forty Five is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill, with editing by Molly Hockey. 
Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.